I don't know if you noticed the story that has been told already this morning through song. There is power in the blood. And there is something about the name of Jesus. And there at the cross, our salvation was bought. He rose from the grave and He lives. And you and I have victory in all of these things. Do you see the joy of congregational singing? The joy of proclaiming the gospel through song. The joy of witnessing to a lost world this morning just through song. And we haven't even begun to preach. The the preacher hadn't even stood up yet to preach. And yet we have proclaimed the gospel in such a powerful way. All of us working together in voice and in song that we have ultimate victory. What a glorious, glorious morning it has been. And so if you have your Bibles, take them this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. One of our core values here at FBC is expositional preaching. Preaching that, that explains the, the text, um, but also takes the text and makes the, the point of the text the point of the sermon. And so, so, so we're able to, to really kind of build off of what God is already saying. And so this is God speaking to us through his word. But, but we also value, as part of expositional preaching, we value this thing called systematic preaching. This, this issue of that we, we, we start at the beginning of a book, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and we work our way through all the way to the end. And so by doing this, starting with chapter 1, verse 1, and working our way in, there's a couple things that we're able to do. Number one, we're able to put everything in context. We're able to really see the context by which these truths that we're getting, these points that we're getting, we see the context of which they're coming out of. But also, it allows you and I to preach the whole counsel of God. It allows for us to, to deal with, with all of Scripture. And so, therefore, we don't just preach the things that we like. We don't just preach the things that are easy. We actually have to deal with some of these harder topics that we have to wrestle with. Because let's just be honest, if we got to pick every Sunday, then we would just always preach things that are enjoyable and never difficult. But if we value the Word of God... If, if there is power in, in the blood of Christ, if there's power at the cross, and, and we have this glorious gospel that begins in Genesis 1 and goes all the way to the end of Revelation, and we value the, the scriptures as being inerrant and sufficient for us today, then we must give heed to all of scripture. We must give heed to all of it and allow it to shine a, a, a light in every, in every area of our lives. And so this is the case presently. First Corinthians chapter 5 is certainly not a, a place that you and I really want to spend a lot of time on. And yet I have somehow have decided to spend three weeks on it. So whatever, you know, um, we're going to talk about this practice of church discipline. And so we, we started last week where, where Paul is calling this church to assemble together, basically to have a business meeting, basically to come together and to deal with an individual who is unrepentant of a gross sin. And so what we saw was that church discipline, this practice, is, is several things. It's not, as I told you, it's not this issue where the church is punishing someone. That's not it. That's not what that is, though that seems to be the kind of the, 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 the stance some people take. But church discipline is actually 
a judgment. It's making a judgment saying whether something is sinful or not, something is holy or not. Okay, so we're, if this behavior is biblical or not, it, it's this turning over to Satan, which was basically allowing the consequences of an individual's sin to happen, to allow this individual to feel the, the, the consequences of their sins. We saw it's the cleansing, it's the protecting of, uh, of the church, and it is this expulsion from the membership of the church, not, not just from the complete disassociation, but an expulsion from the rights and the privileges and the fellowship that comes with being a member of a church. And so this morning, I told you last week we would deal with the what is church discipline. Today, we're going to deal with the reasons for church discipline or, or, the reason, or the why. So last week was the what. Today, we come to why. And FBC, let me just say this. There is value here when we have in expositional and systematic preaching because it is really kind of forcing us to deal with this and understanding what a healthy church looks like. That's the beauty of this letter that Paul has given us. And so if you missed last week, I want to strongly, strongly encourage you to go back and listen to last week and not take these three sermons out of context. They, they all are a puzzle fitting together, okay? So you can find that sermon on our website. You can find it on Facebook. And so we're going to look at today at the practice of church discipline, the why. And there's three things I want you to see this morning, that it is biblical, it's restorative, and it's also a good witness. So let's begin chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Let's just begin in verse 1. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is a that there is a morality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and you have not mourned instead uh, so that the one who had done the deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this. And though I were present... He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, when the power of the Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous or the swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out to the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge those who are, he says, do you not judge He said, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. As I told you, we saw last week the what, where you have this individual who has committed this grave sin and uh, this, 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 this 
son having an affair with the, his, his father's wife being his stepmother. And they have apparently, in their arrogance, believed that they had evolved to such a place that this was a okay sin. And so Paul has now come in and he is telling them they must deal with this. And so I, I want you to understand three things here this morning on why uh, church discipline must be done. When we talk about church discipline, it's the issue of removing one from the membership role, uh, removing them from the privileges uh, and the rights of being a member. It's a changing of the relationship. It is not an issue of where you never see the individual again. That's not it. It is an issue of where they are no longer seen as a member of the church where we can vouch for them and say that this person is living by faith and living in a good standards with God. Um, and so, you know, so it's a changing of the relationship. They are now seen as an outsider. They're, they're now seen as, as though they're not saved rather than being a brother and sister in Christ, okay? So it's a changing of relationships. So why do we do this? Well, number one is I want you to see that it is biblical. Back in 1990s, uh, maybe the early 1990s, there was this fad that went through the church. It went through not just the church, it went through the culture. And like every good evangelical movement in America, a lot of people made lots of money off this, okay? So, so there was this fad that went through America, and you remember it well, I'm sure. It was WWJD. You remember it? Yeah. What would Jesus do, right? All right, so, so you remember, you probably had the bracelet, you may have had the t-shirt, you got the cap, right? And so it was this, this, it was this thing where, 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 you know, it even, by the way, it even had two films, okay? There were even movies based on this thing, all right? And so the idea was to remind Christians to, to focus on imitating Jesus by asking the question in all circumstances, what would Jesus do, right? And, and so no matter the situation, whether it was a situation where you and your, your wife, you're arguing over the dishes, you're, you look at yourself in the mirror and you would say, all right, Brian, what would Jesus do? You know, and, and then you would go wash the dishes. I guess that's what he would do. I don't know. But, but, or, or you would find yourself, you know, at work with this hard circumstance. And you would ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And it started out with teenagers. So when teenagers were at school and they, they faced themselves with the decision of doing drugs or whatever, they would ask themselves, what would Jesus do, right? And so, and so it, no matter the situation that you were in, you would, you would look at your bracelet and you would ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And you would be reminded that you are to imitate Christ, right? You are to imitate Jesus. Well, in the area of church discipline, where we are having to remove a unrepentant brother or sister from the membership role, right? To, to have this change in relationship where, where we can no longer vouch for them as someone who is living by faith. We ask ourselves, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? And many would probably say, well, well Jesus wouldn't do that. Because Jesus wouldn't do that because Jesus is very loving and caring and, and Jesus would never do that. Paul says this is exactly what Jesus would do. Paul, within this text, looks at us and he says, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And what we find is, is that Paul is quick to answer the question there in verses 4 and 5. Notice what he says. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So notice, he, Paul doesn't just say that Jesus would do it. Paul says, Jesus and I would do it. Your spiritual father, 
The one who started this church. Jesus and I would do this. Paul, Paul is very quick to point the finger at Christ and say, you need to imitate Christ in this. And Christ is saying that that man needs to be removed from the church role. You need to begin to treat him in a different way in order that this man may be saved. So in other words, beloved, according to these verses here, in the, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, in the power of our Lord Jesus, for the hope of salvation in our Lord Jesus... What we find is, is that church discipline is very much biblical. In other words, what I mean by that is, is that church discipline is in accordance with or in agreement with the will of God. Meaning it is biblical. And, and, and to prove this, I want to show you some things. And so you're going to do a little Bible drill with me, right? You're going to have to, you're going to take out your sword and we're going to do a little flipping. So, so I want to show you this. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to show you just several things here. Notice, notice Genesis chapter 3. If we want to know what the will of God is when it comes to this issue of church discipline, is this being unloving? Is this something that we shouldn't do because it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult and it's going to, it's going to, it's going to require some, some pain a little bit on, on, uh, for individuals on both sides of this? Is this something that God will do? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, what you find is, is that there in the very beginning where Adam and Eve have sinned against the Lord, what we find here, and look at verse 22, he says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Now, who is the us, right? It is God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Well, you, listen, you had to understand that when you're reading the Old Testament and you see God talking and God saying that this is my will, you need to realize that though it may not say Jesus there, that Jesus and God are the same and never will Jesus go against God. It's not like Jesus is sitting there in a the garden going, I, wait till the New Testament because I'm going to show you how to really love someone. My father is really mean and stuff and I'm different than my father. No. When you see in the Old Testament what God's will is and how God acts, that you cannot separate that him from Jesus in the New Testament, that they are in agreement with one another. And so here we find that he says... God says, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God, notice this, sent him out from the Garden of Eden. He drove him out. He expelled him. He disassociated himself with him. You, you see the same thing, beloved, in, in Exodus chapter 31, verse 14, or Numbers chapter 15, verse 30, where the, the one who sins with the, with, the, with the high hand of arrogance and pride, that there is a removing of this individual. You, you see it also in N Daniel chapter 4. Turn, turn with me to Psalms. Turn to Psalms 50, 51, 11. But again, and, and just to kind of go back while you're turning, and what we see is even Nebuchadnezzar, with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, where, where God tells Nebuchadnezzar that he needs to repent. He needs to change his life. He doesn't change his life. And God doesn't just remove him, beloved, from his own kingdom. He, like, removes him from people in general and drives him into the wilderness where he lives there forever. There's this banishment. And we see in, in Psalms 51, um, 11 here, he says, notice, notice the prayer. He says, uh, you can go verse 10 there. He says, create me a clean old heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And look at verse 11. Do not, cast away, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. There's a fear here. Why? There's a fear that if I am unclean and I am unholy and I have sinned against the Lord, that the punishment of God upon me for my sin is what? 
is that there's this driving away. You say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, God would never do that in the New Testament. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, a passage that we will spend a great deal of time with next week. But Matthew chapter 18. And notice here, beginning in verse, look at verse 17. I tell you what, we'll just read the whole thing. Let's look at verse 15. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. In private, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses, so here he is, unrepentant. This is Jesus speaking. This is that red letter thing, right? If, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What were Gentiles and tax collectors? Well, Gentiles were the people who were not part of the Jewish community. They were not part of the Jewish fellowship. And tax collectors were Jews who had, were seen as traitors to the, Jew, to the Jews by, by, by you know, kind of partnering up with Rome. And so they were all seen as outsiders. So there's this change in relationship. You are not part of the covenant community. We find this over and over and over again. In Matthew chapter 25, you see this issue of the goats and the sheep. There's this, <clears throat> the separation of sheep from goats. And the goats will be cast into hell over and over and over again, beloved. We find that church discipline is the will of God. It is a casting out from Genesis to Revelation. God consistently deals with unrepentant sin in the same way. He separates himself from it. And to not practice church discipline, beloved, is to become so arrogant as a church as to believe that we are wiser than God. This is the reason why Paul says here again in chapter 5, he says there in verse 6, your boasting is not good. You believe that you have become wiser than God, that your will to keep this individual within the church and to treat him the same way that you would treat a brother and sister who is living in holiness and by faith. You believe that you are wiser and more loving than God because this is not how God would act. God would have cast him out. Christ would have cast him out. Paul says, I would have cast him out. Why? Because it is the will of God. And so thus, beloved, we practice church discipline as a church. Hear me for this. I, I know that this, this shouldn't be said. But we practice church discipline because it is biblical. And it is the will of God. And God has commanded us to deal with one another in this way. That if you have been confronted with your sin, that if you have been exhorted to not sin, if you had been admonished and warned about your sin, if you have been pleaded with and prayed for about your sin, and you constantly are unrepentant and will not turn away from your sin, that God says, it is my will that something be done with you and then when the church says we will not do it that you and I are now living in disobedience to God and what is one of our core values as a church what is the very first core value as a church what is the core value of a Christian but to be obedient to God and not man this is where Peter, beloved, and John stand before the Sanhedrin. Stop 
preaching the name of Christ. And Peter and John say, we cannot stop. Why? Why will you not stop? Because we must be obedient to our God, not men. And in the same way, we within the church must have biblical fidelity. A church must be faithful to the scriptures as though we are being faithful to our spouse and to one another. So, beloved, hear me this morning. May I pray, may, may, this is my prayer for you that you would read and study the word daily, that you would know the scriptures so that they could guide you rather than your emotions, that they would guide you rather than your cultural opinions, and that every one of us here this morning would, would, would wake up each morning, would wake up every day with this desire and the conviction of my heart that God, I'm just, I want to be obedient to you father that that at the end of the day the greatest commandment is not love thy neighbor that at the end of the day the greatest commandment is love thy god that the 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 next shall follow after that but but i have been commanded by god to be obedient to him and so therefore there is this conviction within me a conviction beloved that it should be so similar in the other religious practices that we have such as baptism and the lord's supper and the great commission some of you are some of you have a great conviction about the the great commission that you are to go out and evangelize it it consumes you that, that that if i'm not doing this i'm being disobedient there are those of you who think of the lord's supper that that we need to take the Lord's Supper and if I don't do this I'm being disobedient to Him the, the issue of baptism that if one is saved he must be faithful to Christ he must be faithful in God in following Jesus in this area why do we not have that same conviction when it comes to this practice George Washington himself said that the sum of all of mankind can be put in this one phrase that we are to be obedient to the will of God So, beloved, when we come to this and we ask the reasons, why do we do this? At the end of the day, it is because we love our God and we want to be faithful to follow Him. But there's a second one. Notice the outcome of delivering one over. Notice verse 5. He says, I have delivered, he says, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So, so, so there's this allowing the consequences of one's sin to take place that it may bring him to rock bottom, that he may look up and see his need for Christ. Remember that? So the Apostle Paul is motivated here not just also by a love for God and a, and, a, and, a, and a conviction to be obedient to the will of God, but Paul is motivated by the, by the restoring principle here, that this is restorative, that at the end of the day that we practice church discipline, not, just because, not because we're vindictive. Again, not job of the hut. We're not hitting the button and the doors are opening up and the person is falling to their doom. That's not what this is. We're, we're not being vengeful. Well, well, they didn't agree with me in the business meeting and I, I really want to, or, or the deacons meeting or the Sunday school class or they hurt me in my family or, or whatever. That's not what this is. It's not about being vindictive and being vengeful. This is, we do this not because we're legalistic, right? Because we're holier than thou. We're not doing church discipline because, well, I, I never sinned in that way. You may have committed an affair, but I never did. And boy, I'm going to lay it on you as a church. We're not, we're not doing this as, as being, you know, being holier than thou. Well, I've never, had, I've never had that problem. Have you? 
Other, no, no, we've never had it. So, so we're going we're gonna to come against you because that's not what this is. Paul says this is for, for the obedience to him because it is biblical. But it is also that this man who is committing this horrible sin, this man who is being unrepentant, may come to salvation and be restored, not just within the church, but he may be restored in his relationship with Christ. T- take notice of a few verses. In Jude chapter, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he says this he says have mercy on some have mercy on some who are doubting so have mercy on some not all have mercy on some but then notice this others snatch them out of the fire notice what he says some where some mercy and grace is to be shown others a little tough love why? Why are we showing this stuff live? Why are we having to follow through with church discipline? What does Jude say? That you may snatch them out of the fire. How many of you, if you have a fire going and you see that your child is, is about to walk into the fire, they're going to be burned. It's going to hurt. It could kill and destroy. That many of you would not run to them and tackle them and drag them away from the fire. Here, Jude is saying the same thing. That if there are those who are in the church who are preaching something that is ungodly, that they're behaving in a way that is ungodly, if they're, do, if they're believing something or, or being pulled into something that is ungodly, that you, the church, would snatch them up. This is not in the language of gentleness right here. It is a language of love, but it's not always a language of gentleness, of, of just being this meek person. It is an issue to where we have to come and grab them and shake them and say, brother and sister, I'm trying to help you. Or how about Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2? He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught, the word is overtaken. If a sin overtakes them in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore. You who are spiritual, make them complete. Such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Do you not know that many of our brothers and sisters who are living in sin, beloved, is because sin was crouching at their door like Cain. And it has overtaken them. They've fallen in and they don't know how to get out. They can't get out. They don't even want to get out this so bad. And Paul says, restore them. The practice of church discipline can be compared to a man who jumps into the freezing cold water to save the one who's fallen in. Kicking and screaming, dragging them back out. The practice of church discipline can be described as the one who carries the weight of the, of the sin, of the, the burden of another man's sin, another woman's sin, because it's too heavy for them to carry. It overtakes them, and so you come up behind them or un- alongside them, and you pick this burden up, and you say, Brother, I know that this addiction that you have, I know that this obsession that you have, I know that this sin has overtaken you, and it is too much for you to bear. But we, the church, are going to come in alongside you, and we are going to help you overcome this. Or we snatch them from the fire. 
So when a church has exhausted all avenues, that when we've exhorted and when we've admonished and when we've prayed and when we've begged and when we've warned and we've done everything that we possibly can and they will not listen to reason, they will not repent, beloved. The practice of church discipline, the the removal of membership is the last hope of restoring our loved ones. It is the jumping into the lake to drag them out. And there are two things that you need to know here. That Paul is calling for, for this brother, this man who is in sin and who will not come out of it. There are two things that he is calling for. Number one, he is calling for this man's repentance. In Acts chapter 3, 19, we, we see here, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Repentance, beloved, is not a one-time deal. We have a problem within our church today where we believe that repentance was this thing that I did that time when I said that prayer that time. And so I've repented and I'm done. No, no, no. Repentance is not just a turning around by saying this prayer. It is what the Bible calls a changing of one's mind. A changing of one's heart. Where the sin that you used to love, the sin that that was so attractive to you, the sin that you loved to participate, the sin that you couldn't help yourself but to be a part of, you have now changed your mind and now it is no longer as beautiful as you once thought. It is no longer as fun as it used to be. It is no longer appealing to your eyes but it is disgusting and horrible. There's something about it that you are connected to. It draws you to but repentance is a changing of your mind, a turning around and realizing that this great God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, is the one that I need to run to. And so it's not this one time thing, but it is every day of your life that you are waking up and you are looking to to run to Christ and not back to your sin. So if you were a liar, you have changed your mind that lying is no longer good, but telling the truth and and being like Christ is the way I need to go. So you're running to that. If adultery is your thing, if uh, drugs is your thing, whatever it may be, if cheating and lying and whatever is your thing, you realize this is not what it is. And so there's a change of mind and a change of lifestyle of struggling and fighting to not go down this path, but to come to Christ. So the goal here is to see a turning away from sin and a turning of one's mind. But beloved, you must understand it's not just turning away from, it is a turning to. It's not just I quit sinning. It is I'm turning to Christ. And so I'm now looking where I was once producing bad fruit. I'm now looking to produce good fruit. And so we're turning to him. And there's this expression of a Christian life. And so this is what Paul is saying for this man. We want this man to be saved. We want this man to be sanctified. We want this man to to reject this lifestyle and come back into the church worshiping Christ, loving Christ, finding purity in Christ. It's repentance, but it's also reconciliation. Again, there in Matthew eighteen fifteen, he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. But if he listens to you, notice this, you have won your brother. I love that. Because how many brothers and sisters have we lost? You could think of some right now, can't you? Men and women who were overtaken by their sin and you've lost them. 
They may not even know it. You may have even come to them and you may have called them out on their sin. But in their pride, in their arrogance, in their lack of repentance, they just looked at you and just said, you're being judgmental. You're you're really not my friend. But you can think of right now, beloved men and women that you love dearly, that it would please your heart to be reconciled to them again. To see mothers and daughters reconciled. Fathers and sons brothers, sisters, co-workers, friends, church members, all reconciled relationship that was broken but now brought back together. This is what Paul says that we want to see. We do this. But what, what reasons that we may be obedient to God but we may see the, the power of restoration. And beloved, hear me, I know that you believe that we may not see this but it does work, not all the time. But I've seen where spouses would come and say, I'm leaving my spouse. I've heard of other pastors. Uh, one pastor said a wife called in the middle of the night and said, I'm done. I'm leaving the jerk. He's a jerk. I don't want to be with him. And there in the office, the pastor talks to this woman and he's telling her, you will not leave here. She said, why can't I? Because we, the church, will not allow it. We will carry this burden. We are going to walk with you. We're going to call you to repentance if you leave your husband. You cannot leave your husband. I'm tired, beloved. Hear me on this. I'm tired of sin winning. I've looked at my wife in the midst of these situations and I've cried and I've wept and I've said, I'm tired of sin winning and destroying lives. And praise be to God that when the church stands and says, we are going to work and do the hard things to carry these burdens, we're going to snatch you out of the fire, but we begin to see victory. And so this, this woman and this man, this woman was going to leave their husband. The pastor says that through church discipline, no one knew about it, but the pastor and a few others they, they restored their marriage. Or another pastor who's a dear friend of mine in Trace who said that they had to go through the entire process to the very end of the process of excommunication. A man who was living in adultery, open public adultery. And for years they called him to repentance and he would not repent. And one day there with his wife and his children there, they removed him from church membership. He was angry. He hated the church. But about 10 years later, the pastor stands in the pulpit and there walks through the door this man who went on to marry the other woman, who went on to have kids with the other woman, walks into the church and during the invitation, walks down the aisle and he grabs the pastor and he says to the pastor, he says, thank you, thank you, thank you. Everyone else was done with me. Everyone else was fine that I would live in my sin and I would destroy my wife and I would destroy my kids, but not you and not this church. And so I come today to tell you, pastor, I come today to tell you, church, thank you. Thank you for confronting me. Did he join the church? No, he was at another church that time. But he was reconciled to the pastor, he was reconciled to the church, and he was reconciled to God. Beloved, if we truly love people, we have to snatch them out of the fire. And we have to carry their burdens. And we have to fight the sin that has overtaken them. That they may be restored. But thirdly, this is also a good witness. In Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. 
What do you think Paul means here, beloved, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, I wrote to you there, in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world for, with the covetous and the swindlers and with the idolaters. And when they would, he says, for then you would have to go out of this world. He says, you've got to be in this world. And not only that, God has given you a command that you are to be a witness in this world to the revilers and to the covenant. You are to share the gospel with these people. They've got to see your witness in this. And so here what we find, beloved, is that a witness, according to 1 Corinthians 8, is to describe to someone what you know. And as Christians, beloved, within the church, we are testifying to a world what we know. And what I know is, is I know Christ. And I know the work of His salvation. But I also know the judgment that is to come. And so here what we find is, is that we as a church who have covered in together and have been brought in here, that you came in and you were singing, there's power in the blood. Do you believe that? You sang it, do you believe it? There's no other name greater than Jesus. There's no other name. There's no other name amongst heaven that can save. At the cross, we, we sing these songs, we believe these songs. Well, you and I are witnesses. And so we as a church are to be truth-tellers in a world that is full of lies. And so we testify of God's holiness. There in verse 1, he says, there is an immorality among you. And this means the actions of this man is sinful, it's offensive to God. But for the church to tolerate the sin sends a different message that God is not offended by this sin. Beloved, hear me, you are not politicians. You're not marketing something out there in this world that just so you can just make a living. We don't go and tell half-truths and lies so that we can get voted in or someone will buy our product or anything. That's not who we are. We are witnesses who tell the truth that God is a holy God and that this world is full of sin and there are things in this world that are unholy and unrighteous. And therefore, a church that does not practice church discipline in accordance with Hebrews twelve fourteen, strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We are to strive for holiness not only in the songs that you sing, not only in the messages that are preached, but in how we live amongst one another and how we practice and live within this church. So, And we say, well, what is holiness? Well, holiness is being separated from sin, being consecrated or devoted to God. To be holy means that, that I'm in this state of, of, of working to be away from sin and turning from sin. Not that I'm perfect, but that we are in Christ. And Christ hates sin. And if Christ is in me and I am Him, and we are all covenanted together and Christ is in this place, then Christ hates sin and so do we. And so therefore the church must be a good witness and testify of what is holy and what is unholy. The church must testify of the sacrifice of Christ where Paul says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. In other words, this is amazing. Christ's work at the cross of Calvary worked. Amen? Because there was power in the blood. And because, the, and because of the cross, His death and His resurrection cleansed you of your sins. Amen? then why are you still sinning? 
Why are you still tolerating sin? It's an issue of holiness. I'm not perfect yet. None of us are perfect. We've got a speck we all got to deal with. But at the end of the day, beloved, we are called to be holy. And if Christ's work has changed me, then beloved, for me to continue to tolerate sin within the very place that sin is told not to be tolerated, it sends a message to the world that the work of Christ did not work. Paul says in Romans chapter, in chapter 6, listen to what he says here, beloved. What shall we say then? We are, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And so therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died... It's for he who has died is freed from sin. Well, how can you and I profess in this church to be people who have been saved and redeemed and cleansed if we're constantly tolerating the unholiness and the unrighteousness of the world within one another? How can we continue to live like we used to live before Jesus and claim that we've been resurrected to a new life in Jesus? What kind of witness would we be to this world? And so therefore, beloved, the practice of accountability and the practice of church discipline is a testimony to the world that God has changed the group of people who belong to this faith family. That God has changed us. God has changed me so much that I am willing to be confronted by my brothers and sisters if I continue to live in sin. This is the power of the gospel, beloved. Church discipline is connected to the gospel. Because it is a it is a illustration and an expression to the world that Jesus Christ came to die for us and to change us, and that there is nothing else in this world that can change me and save me but Christ. Is that the story? Is that your story this morning? That Christ has saved you? That the power of Christ on the cross, that the blood of Christ has the power to change me from the inside out, to change all of us in here below. Is that not the gospel? And is that not the gospel that we are to tell the world and that we are to demonstrate to the world that those out there who need hope and are in need of something would look to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we not only preach and not only teach, but we live and practice within our very own walls and community with one another. That Christ came and died for them. And that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has the power to change their lives like he changed us. Is this the testimony that you are giving, FBC? Is this the testimony of the changing power of the blood of Christ? I hope it is. If not, I invite you this morning to come and know the power of Christ. I invite you this morning to come and believe upon the gospel that redeems and changes us this morning. But I would even say thirdly this morning, beloved, that we testify of God's judgment. For Paul writes, what have I to do with the judging, the judging of outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. 
Beloved, the passing of judgment on sin, the expulsion of the unrepentant sinner in the church is a warning of God's judgment on all those who are outside the church and even inside the church. The practice of church discipline is a living testimony that one day that every one of us are going to stand in front of a holy, righteous God. And he is going to look upon our lives and he's going to see every thought. He's going to see every inclination of your heart, every action. It's all recorded. It's all there in the blink of an eye as quick as you can think. Faster than any computer, God has everything about you and your sin and my sin, beloved. It is all there. And the Bible tells us that we are going to be judged. And those who are in Christ will be judged based upon the righteousness of Jesus and not our own. And beloved, we will enter into heaven and we will have the glory of eternal fellowship with God. But for everyone else, beloved, who is not in Christ, they will be expelled. And experience a torment of eternal punishment in hell. Church discipline, beloved, is a warning to the world. It's a warning to all men and to women that we need to get right with Christ and we need to get right with Christ now. That we need to repent of our sins and ask for the forgiveness, ask of His forgiveness, believing upon Christ as our only hope and salvation. Is this not the kind of witness that we are called to be? Is this not the kind of witness, FBC, that you are called to be as a church to warn this world of hell? Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the very jails, the very shackles of the Holocaust there in concentration camp wrote this. He said, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another person to sin. There's nothing more cruel than to enable another person to continue to live in their sin. But then he says, nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. It is a ministry of mercy. Beloved, are we not to be witnesses to a lost and dying world that there is a judgment, but there is a Christ who restores and redeems? And so at the end of the day, beloved, why do we do this? Why do we practice church discipline? And the one word that you can sum it all up in is the very one word that is accused of the reason for not doing it. But it is love. We do it for love. We practice church discipline because we love our God. Do you love God? If we love God, beloved, we will do what He says. We will, we will do as He commands. We will obey His word. And so therefore, beloved, hear me this morning. You want to know the greatest test of your love for God. Do the hard things. Do the things that God has called you to do. D- do you love one another? Do you love the ones that sit behind you, in front of you, and to the left, and to the right of you? Do you love them? Then seek their repentance and their reconciliation and their restoration, beloved. Whether you have to snatch them from the fire. Whether you have to get dirty and struggle with them and and carry the burden with them. Love them, beloved. Love them. And and then the final question is, or, or the reason we do this is we do this because we love this dying world. 
And by that I mean the people who are under judgment. We love our family. We love our friends. We want them to know Christ. We want them to be evangelized. We want them to come to know Jesus as Savior. So therefore we love this world by being an example to them. By being a witness to them. And warning them of God's judgment. And that there is one who has given his life to save them. FBC, I ask you this morning, are you willing to commit yourself to love? To love God with all your heart, with all your soul and mind. If so, be faithful to his word. Are you willing to love one another with a love so powerful that it has the power to change, it has the power to, to save from destruction and misery? Then be faithful to one another. And are you willing to love the lost and the unbelievers in this world in such a way that it will penetrate their heart with the gospel? Then be a faithful witness. Be a faithful witness. Let us love God. Let us love one another. And let us love this world. Let's pray.